Good morning, church. My name is Dan. If we haven't had a chance to meet, I'm one of the pastors here. And we have been going through a series on the life of David for several weeks now. And David, starting as an unknown shepherd boy, quickly rising the ranks to king of Israel. And, and last week we saw him um, in his tragic fall. And so we're going to continue in this story. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 13 and 14 today, starting in 13. And it's important to remember that God has, um, he has promised several chapters ago that he would raise up a king from the line of David that would reign forever and establish the kingdom forever. Also, God had forgiven David for his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah, but he warned him of the consequences that were yet to come. And today we are going to see some of the ripple effects of that. And at first glance, um, if anybody's read ahead and, and looked at this story, at first glance you might wonder, why is this story even in the Bible? But um, even in this ancient narrative where we might ask that question, we can also ask a very relevant question of what happens when we can't control our desires? And do we have any hope when we are overtaken by them? So desires, we all have desires, both good and bad. Um, desire in itself is not a bad thing, okay? Picture life, if we didn't have any desires, like desire literally was not a thing, that would be a very depressing way to live. No desire for food, no desire for love. Notice I put them in that order. No desire for work or progress or community or friendship. No desire for God. That would be certainly a depressing place to live. And I don't know about you guys, maybe you have a story in mind um, where you think of a desire that you had and you just thought, man, if I get this thing, it is going to make everything better. I know for me, when I was growing up, we used to take trips uh, as a family in the summer. During summer break, my parents, we'd load up in, the, in our minivan and just kind of go see the country. We went out east once. We went out, out west. I grew up in Minnesota. And this particular year, I was in middle school. And we were going to come out west, like do Yellowstone, all that stuff. And we were going to come through South Dakota, if I remember it correctly. And we were going to go mining for gold. And uh, if I remember, I think it's maybe like Deadwood or something where you, can, where you can do this. And so I'm, you know, like middle school age, maybe late elementary. And in my mind, I have these amazing expectations of what is going to take place. You know, I, I, I'm thinking, okay, I've seen the movies. I, I've seen Discovery Channel. This is going to be epic. I can't believe my parents are bringing us to do this. This is amazing. And so in my mind, you know, I'm thinking, I'm going to have this huge pickaxe. I'm just going to be like going to town on the side of this mine. I'm going to be getting just these huge chunks of gold and probably be able to retire. But if you're... Uh, Smarter than I am, which you probably are, you, you kind of realize that's maybe not what exactly took place. And so we got there, and, and there was like this, you had to go with, it was like a tourist trap, you know, you had to go like with a tour guide, and, and you're not even, there's no pickaxes involved. All it is is you're like, you're like uh, panning through, the, you're like sifting all these different materials, trying to get like these tiny little flakes, and then 
you put them in this jar and you're supposed to bring it back and show your friends and have this stupid souvenir. And uh, needless to say, I was a little disappointed. And I had such an unrealistic desire that I thought would be satisfied in this, but it only left me feeling more disappointed. And it might have, it was probably my fault. I mean, maybe it was my parents' fault. They didn't explain what mining for gold meant in their heads. Um, but I was so disappointed because I had such high expectations that this was it. This was going to make it for me. And while it left me, it, it wasn't a bad desire, but additionally, our, our hearts are full of all sorts of desires, both good and bad, and these desires often promise us something that they just simply cannot deliver on. And so we're going to step into this passage, and I actually just want to do a quick disclaimer. This is kind of a graphic passage, um, so just be forewarned. Uh, we won't, doesn't get super detailed, but it, it could be um, somewhat of a trigger or just make you uncomfortable. So just a quick disclaimer, but we're going to start in, in chapter 13, verse 1. So it says, Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's other son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. And very quickly, we will see that, that this love is, is nothing but desire. This isn't real love. This is simply a physical craving, a, a lust. And his desire is so strong that the writers say it is tormenting him. This word literally means to be bound. He was bound by his desire. He, he was a slave to his desire. He is being overtaken by it. See, sin and our, our desire for these sinful things, sin is not freedom. Sin is simply just the opposite. People often think of you know, Christianity, or maybe some of us do, we think of the Bible kind of as like this straitjacket of rules that's just trying to prevent us from any sort of fun or joy in this world. But listen to how the Lord describes sin in Genesis 4. He says, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Okay, sin is crouching at the door. That means a couple things. One, it means that it's trying to hide itself in the shadows. It's, it's trying to appear not quite as deadly or serious as, as it really is. Like, it's not really going to wreak havoc in your life. It's trying to hide its reality. Second, it's crouching at the door. It's acting somewhat as like a, a predator towards you ready to attack and pounce on you in your weakest moment when you least expect it. And he says, its desire is contrary to you. Sin is not for you. Sin is against you. Its desires are contrary. Sin is the, the great manipulator that promises you the world, but leaves you abandoned on the side of the road, helpless. So when we often think we're free from rules, you know, if we if we're we don't need that straitjacket of of Christianity or the Bible, but really we are simply a slave to our desires and prey 
to the destructiveness of sin. Continuing in the story, so he's overtaken and he's tormented by this, and so his crafty cousin Jonadab notices. He notices his condition, that he seems ill, and he suggests a plan to get what he wants. He says, lay down, pretend to be ill, and have Tamar prepare food that, that you can eat it from her hand. And so Amnon does this, and then he suddenly orders everyone else out of his chamber, out of his bedroom, except Tamar. And he says, bring the food into my chamber. Picking up in verse 11, says, But when she brought them near to him to eat, he took hold of her and said, Come, lie with me, my sister. She answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where would I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her, and being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. So Tamar is trying to do anything she can to try to speak sense into him. She even tries to buy time by saying, just go ask the king, he'll let me marry you. She's, she doesn't mean that she's doing anything to try to buy a few more minutes to get free. But Amnon's desires have already overtaken him. And the biblical writers make it extremely clear of the lack of consent when they write, he violated her. How are we doing? What started as an internal desire escalated into a horrific scene of assault. Listen to what James, the brother of Jesus, says. He says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Okay, all sin starts as this little seed of desire, and then when it goes unchecked, it grows into these atrocious acts that make the headlines. These appetites of the flesh that we see here will always lead into death and destruction. Picking up in verse 15, Then Amnon hated her with very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Get up, go. But, when she, but she said to him, No, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, Put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. So now he, he got what he wanted or thought he wanted, and he brutally commands her to leave. He yells, Get up and go. Perhaps he couldn't face the shame that he felt when he saw her for, for what he had done. And he doesn't even call her by her name anymore. He says, get this woman out of my presence. Dejected and crying, away she goes. Certainly this act did not satisfy him in the way he had hoped. Instantly he felt hatred instead of love. 
It left him worse off than he was before. And that is what sin always does, promising fulfillment, but leaving us empty and broken. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says in his book, The Weight of Glory. He writes, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Okay, so again, having desires isn't the problem. It's pursuing something good in the wrong way. And we put our hope in these cheap substitute desires because we don't really believe that God will satisfy. We don't really believe that God is for us. So Amnon fools around with sex at the expense of his sister because he doesn't really believe infinite joy is offered to him. So he settles. And that's what sin is. We, we go against what God says because we don't really believe he has our best interest at heart. She leaves and her other brother, Absalom, takes her into his home and, and somehow he knows right away what happened. He says, has Amnon, your brother, been with you? Picking up in verse 21, when King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. Okay, so King David was furious, but does nothing. Instead of resolving the matter, it is suppressed. This is likely because Amnon was David's firstborn and therefore the next heir to the throne. And so two full years go past since this act and still nothing had been done. No justice had been served on her behalf and this sinful act has gone unpunished. Absalom thinks, well, the king hasn't done anything. Well, I will. And so he's about to have this sheep shearers event, which is a time of feasting and drinking. And he decides, decides this is my opportunity for revenge on Tamar's behalf. And so he comes to the king and he bids high. Um, he, he, he bids high asking for the king. He, thinks, hey, he says, hey, I'm having this event. You should come, King David, and all your servants. Knowing that the king will probably refuse. And the king says, no, that'd be, that's too much. That'll be a burden to you. And, uh, but, but he knows what he's doing. Similar to like when you're a kid and you ask your mom for a jet ski because you know that's outrageous. But then she says, no. And then you're like, how about a video game? Kind of the same idea. It seems more reasonable. Um, but the, so the king declines, but Absalom then suggests what he really wants, that his brother Amnon would join. Verse 28, then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark, when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear, have I not commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose and each mounted his mule and fled. Okay, realize what has just happened. This is nearly an absolute parallel 
to what David did with both Bathsheba and Uriah. His two sons are replicating his actions of sexual sin and premeditated murder. Both of David's sons, who would have been next in line for the throne, we see have inherited the same flaws almost to a T. One son can't control his lust, and one son can't control his anger. Perhaps Absalom was a little more justified than David as he was trying to avenge on Tamar's behalf, but it's also possible that he knew what he was doing and wanted knew he would be next in line to the throne. Either way, we see the results of sin all through the story, as well as last week's message. It brings about broken relationships, deep hurt, mourning, dysfunction, hopelessness, and shame. Absalom flees to Geshir for three years after this, after he kills his brother, leaving David mourning for the loss of his son. So what starts simply as a misplaced desire always ends in death and destruction. Next, we see Joab, not Jonadab, but Joab gets a grand idea. You know, what hope is there at this point? Where, what is, where's this king that we were promised? Well, he gets this idea how he's going to bring peace back to the kingdom. And he calls this unnamed woman from Tekoa. We never get her name. And he tells her to go in front of the king and pretend to be mourning. Dress like you're mourning. And I'll give you this story. And he gives her a script to say. So chapter 14, verse 5. We'll pick up there. Speaking to King David, she says, Alas, I am a widow. My husband is dead. And your servant had two sons. And they quarreled with one another in the field. There was no one to separate them. And one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole clan has risen against your servant. And they say, give up the man who struck his brother, that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. And so they would destroy the heir also. So we can see what she's doing. She's doing almost exactly what Nathan did a couple chapters ago. She's using a hypothetical story to, to help the king see the situation more clearly. Nathan did it after David sinned with Bathsheba and Uriah, and it worked, so she follows suit. And her rationale is this. She says, if they kill this man, they would destroy the heir also. And while her heir is fictional, David's is not. At this point, remember, Absalom would have been next in line to the throne, and people are still waiting and anticipating this mighty king that was promised to come from David, so perhaps they think it's him, so they're, they're trying to protect him as the next heir, thinking he will bring peace. So the king listens to her plea, uh, and he agrees, and he says, as the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. And this is where she kind of catches him, he, he's sort of backed into a corner and she accuses him of having somewhat of a double standard. Picking up in verse 13, And the woman said, Why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself. 
inasmuch as the king does not bring the banished one home again. We must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life, and he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. So for three years, Absalom has been banished away, and David does nothing. Maybe he didn't know what to do, so instead he didn't do anything. Maybe he, he feels, how could he possibly do anything when he committed the same sins? But his indifference and, and passivity drives the wedge even further between him and his son. His own son, he extends neither forgiveness nor consequence. When in reality, David had been given both consequence and forgiveness from God back in chapter 12. Nathan had said to David, The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. But he also had to face the discipline and the consequences that God had promised. And this, this wise woman says, he devises, speaking of God, he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. What is, what is that? What is she talking about? Well, at the time, according to the biblical law, you can read about this in Numbers chapter 35, there were these designated cities of refuge for the people of God. And so it was for someone who inadvertently or accidentally killed someone, they could flee to the city and be safe. Once they got there, they were safe. They couldn't be avenged for the blood that they had committed on accident. So it's kind of like, I mean, when you're playing tag as a kid, like a safe zone, you're good. And then, But if you leave that safe zone, well, then you can be avenged. So there were these cities, and, and Absalom actually didn't go to one of these refuge cities. And we, and we certainly know his killing wasn't accidental, anything but. But her parable still starts to soften David's heart towards the murderer and the banished. And she says, God devises means so that the banished one doesn't have to remain an outcast. Well, here she's, she's talking about this part of the law again that according to it, they could return safely home only after the death of their high priest. And so this, this wise woman, while referencing the law, gives one of the most beautiful gospel presentations of the Old Testament. She's foreshadowing the forgiveness of sins through the death of our high priest, Jesus. We all have broken these laws of God through our desires overtaking us. And we are all guilty, but God in his infinite mercy devises means to bring us, us these banished ones, home, hidden in Christ not having to fear the avenge or the judgment of God. And David had, had received this forgiveness for his sin, but he has quickly forgotten and withholds it from his own son. How quick we can be to accept forgiveness from God for the atrocious things that we do, but yet we hoard it from others for their sins against us. Or we will do as, as David does here and put conditions on our forgiveness. 
in verse 21, it says, Then the king said to Joab, Behold now, I grant this. Go bring back the young man Absalom. So Joab goes and gets him. But then David adds on a new condition. And the king said, Let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived two full years back in Jerusalem without coming into the presence of King David. And in this time, he's had more kids, like David's grandkids, but still is unable to go into his presence. And so finally, Absalom, after these years, is like, I've had enough. It's become intolerable. So eventually, he gets Joab to bring him into the presence of the king. Verse 33, Then Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. So he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. Now, before you think we've come to a total happy ending of the story, um, or that, okay, finally, the tension has resolved from this horrible story, notice what one commentator says about this. He says, he approached like a servant rather than a son. There was no weeping as one might expect at such a reunion after years of estrangement. There were not even any words spoken, or at least none recorded. This was an awkward meeting. Even the king's kiss looks more royal and official than paternal. If you, if you need more evidence that this was not a, a super genuine uh, reconciliation or full reconciliation, all you need to do is continue reading in the story of chapter 15 and see how the plot plays out. But we'll, we'll end here for now. And this, this, but this story, this temporary ending, leaves us and leaves them longing for a better king, better than David, better than maybe Absalom would be, one full of justice, that David wasn't, but yet one that would forgive in his divine mercy. Look at the contrast from Absalom returning to David to this story that Jesus tells in the Gospel of Luke. Luke 14, verse 20. This is a, the familiar story of the prodigal son. Starting in, in verse 20, it says, and, and he, the prodigal son, arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. While David refuses to move toward his rebellious son, 
Jesus sees us and feels compassion and runs towards us. While David stoically extends this political and meaningless kiss, our God embraces us and kisses us as a father whose son has returned home. While David reluctantly and sheepishly allows Amnon back in Jerusalem, he forces him to live apart, away from his presence in his own house. But our king says, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. So how do we control our desires? By grasping this truth of the gospel that God alone can satisfy that longing in our hearts and letting him make us new and and give us new desires. The problem is that we don't really believe that God can satisfy or God will satisfy. So so we look for it in all sorts of other things and and we start to take matters into our own hands because we don't trust him. Worship team, you guys can come back up. And some of our desires, again, they might be good things. They might be good things that have just been put in the place of God. And the answer is not to suppress all our desires or become numb and just try to harden our hearts towards the world. The problem is that our desires and our loves are out of order and we look for them in the wrong places. Maybe, you know, if you're unsatisfied in in your marriage, maybe it's because you are looking to your spouse and smothering them with an expectation and needs that they were never meant to fully satisfy. We can do the same thing with, with our kids. We look to our kids to fulfill our every desire or our job or our, our career. Remember, these are good, some of these are good things. Or, or we look to experiences, both, both good and bad, thinking that they're going to satisfy our desires. So maybe, maybe you're here this morning um, and you're, you're a Christian, but you're still struggling with some sin and, and it's tormenting you. And you can't seem to get a grasp on it or suppress it enough. If you really understood the reality that God is pleased with you through Christ and wants to bring you where He is, you wouldn't look for your ultimate satisfaction in the things of this world. Maybe your desire is simply misplaced. And the gospel is something you believe in your head, but it has not become this tangible reality in your heart. Has the good news become old news? Or maybe you're here and you're not a Christian, or you're not sure what you believe. Somebody tricked you into coming here, they told you there's this new brunch spot, and you showed up and they handed you like a bagel bite. 
But maybe, maybe you've come to realize that nothing is satisfying those desires at your core. While life might be good, it keeps you longing for more. Every promotion, every accomplishment, every new relationship or physical experience you think will fill that void of desire but leaves you empty. And you'll go to any lengths to try and get what you think you need next to fulfill you. So what hope is there when we are overtaken by our sinful desires that our King has devised means through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ to bring the banished ones home? Let's pray. Father, we look to You. We come to You. We surrender to You. All of our desires, both good and bad. God, satisfy us. Let us believe that you are for us and you are for our joy and that it will be found in no place but you alone. Father, speak to us as we leave this place and that you would change us and that we would become more like your son, Jesus. Amen.